Welcome everyone to this week's uh, Berkeley Center for Law and Technology's last week or the last two weeks in Texas webcasts. Um, I'm Wayne Stacy, the Executive Director, and, and once again, I'm here with Michael Smith. Uh, you've heard me say it before. If Michael doesn't know it, you probably don't care. Uh, so with that, Michael, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for having me, Wayne. It's good to be here today. This well, is my birthday, so happy birthday to me. Ah, well, happy birthday. Um, I appreciate you, you spending it with all of us uh, talking about uh, jurisdictional matters. That is Absolutely. a happy birthday. So, yep. well, well, Michael, I, when we look through this, this week's opinions, there are a lot of interesting procedural motions that came through that really are, are fairly important and fairly informative. Uh, and I'd like to kick off with the Western District of Texas and this kind of dual stay motion where we get the same relative relatively the same facts and two wildly different decisions? Yep, that's exactly what we get. Um, we've talked uh, previously about how you tend to get stays denied in Waco and granted in Austin, but we had a particularly clear, in fact, it was so clear, I, I thought I was looking at the wrong case when I was writing up a, a post on it. Uh, a plaintiff called Sonrai filed a number of patent cases in February of last year in Waco. And one of those cases, uh, uh, a month before the Markman hearing, the defendant asked for a transfer to the Austin division. Uh, Judge uh, Albright granted it. In fact, the defendant's world headquarters is in the Austin division. So he gr grants it. it, it's reassigned to Judge Yackel, and Judge Yackel then stays the case pending IPR proceedings. The action against some other defendants proceeds in Waco, gets a trial setting, and uh, gets a similar motion to stay uh, in front of Judge Albright. Judge Albright denies the motion to stay. Now, I have to I have to point out, it's different patents. It's an unusual set of facts in front of Judge Albright with regard to the stay and how things came up, but it's an example of cases can be filed at the same time, and if they get transferred to Austin, the outcome is going to be uh, different and on a different time schedule than it would be if it stays in Waco. This is the clearest uh, example that we've had of that yet. So, I mean, when you look at these on their face, and maybe I'm missing something, but it looks like that the takeaway is pretty clear. If you want to stay, you need to get to Austin. If you want to avoid a stay, stay out of Austin. Go to exactly. Waco. Exactly. Is it really that simple if you're advising the client? Yes. I think it is. If you can get out of Waco, you, you might still be stayed in Waco. If you had these same facts in, in Waco, it might have been a stay. But uh, it sure seems like the court is fighting to avoid staying cases and resolve cases on all the issues in the case in Waco. And in Austin, uh, the court is comfortable with waiting and seeing what the, the uh, uh, patent office is going to do before it goes forward with anything. So if you can get a transfer to Austin, uh, it appears that you'll you'll likely get a stay if you ask for it. Well, you, you found another procedural procedurally fun case. This actually belongs in a in a law school class. Um, it's been a long time since I've seen a, a 50A motion granted. Um, <laughs> yeah. and it might have been in a law school class, but this is an well, IP case with a 50A motion. Yeah, it, it, it was kind of old school. Uh, you got to the end of the plaintiff's case, defendant moves for judgment as a matter of law under 50A. Of course, now the rule says you can do that after all the evidence, but sometimes judges want to hear it then. Sometimes as a defendant, you want to make it then. 
So the defendant makes the motion, the judge sends the jury home, recesses the trial, comes back, has argument that afternoon, has argument the next morning, and then grants it. So um, it was an unusual situation, but it might underscore that um, Rule 50A can be a tool that can be effective, uh, but you don't want to get caught by surprise. It, I have seen trials where since the rule change, the judge turned to the, the, to the defendant and said, okay, I'd like to hear your motion now. Oh, well, judge, we weren't going to do that till all the evidence. No, I want to hear it now. Well, that may have been what happened here. And the party obviously was prepared for that and it worked out well for them. They didn't even have to go forward putting on the defense case. But uh, that hurts if you're the plaintiff. It's nice if you're the defendant. So, <laughs> well, it underscores if you're the plaintiff. I, I have something I call a JMAL worksheet I'd use in every trial. I put every claim, every element of every claim, and then as the evidence comes in, I check it off and do a little cite to, well, the expert said this at 9.30. I check it off. So if I'm the plaintiff especially, when we get to the end of my case, I've, I know I've got evidence on every element of damages. Did you get your hospital bills in? Did you get your uh, future earning capacity in? So that I know I'm covered on everything and I'm not waiting and assuming I'm gonna be able to get stuff in on the defendant's case in chief because the defendant might go ahead and move for JMAL on that element of damages at that point and I'm stuck. So, so uh, the JMAL is a very, very important part of trial practice and this underscores that you have to have to be prepared for it throughout the trial. It also underscores that good lawyers can overlook small details that are catastrophic sometimes. Right, right. Well, speaking of small details that turned out to be catastrophic, uh, <laughs> there's a, a wonderful lack of standing case. It's a, a really nice analysis uh, by the court, by Judge Albright, of an IP transaction. Exactly. This is the, the IT case. And the, the issue was whether the plaintiff had substantial sufficient rights when it sued the defendant for patent infringement. And uh, we see that raised in a number of cases. But in this case, the defendant did, get it, did a good job presenting it. And Judge Albright said, yes, there is a defect in constitutional standing. That's a defect that can't be cured at this point. So I have to dismiss the case. And I'll tell you the other, the other trick you can do here. I saw someone do this in Tyler one time. They filed this motion for lack of standing because the plaintiff hadn't sued in the right name. But before they filed it, they filed a deck action somewhere else. So when Judge Davis dismissed the infringement case, the deck action is now the first filed case. They tried to refile and Judge Davis said, well, I'm sorry, but you're not the first filed case anymore. So this is an opportunity to not just get the case dismissed, but potentially file the case where you want it on the defense side. So any any prediction on how Judge Albright would handle that type of, of gamemanship? Um, I have not seen anything on that. I do know from, as I said, past experience with, uh, with Judge Davis and Tyler when he was on the bench that he said, nope, we're following the first file rule here and you had your chance to be first filed. I had the same thing come up with Judge Ward a number of years ago where a party said they filed suit in Marshall had a motion to transfer and said, uh, well, if you don't, we don't want to go to where to wherever, but we'll go to Houston, the alternative. And Judge Ward said, no, 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 plaintiff's choice of forum, this is back when that was a factor, plaintiff's choice of forum only counts for your first choice. If I'm not going to keep it in Marshall, then you don't get to go to your second choice. We go to where the defendant 
has shown is is uh, is a more appropriate forum. Now that was before Volkswagen, before uh, TC Heartland, and everything else. But I thought it was interesting that the court said, "I'm only going to defer to the plaintiff's choice of forum with respect to your initial choice, not your later one." So I would probably go back and dig up those cases if I had that issue come up before Judge Albright and see if he agrees with them. Well, we we've got another interesting ruling coming out, and you're seeing at least the Waco court start developing its rules on how much work you can actually put on the other side to create original documents. And this comes up all the time with, with these massive financial documents where one side just wants to dump it and the other side wants you to organize it. Right. So what and are we learning out of these cases? Well, if this is in the Akis case. Uh, you had a situation, it's a very short order, uh, but it lays out the party's arguments on this. And this was a situation where, as you said, the defendant dumped a bunch of financial documentation and the plaintiff said, I can't tell which of these lines go with which product. And the defendant said, well, that's not the way we keep it. And Judge Gilliland in this order said, I am going to require you to assign the number to prepare something that ties the products to the financial lines. Now, the reason why this is interesting is, as you said, we've had other cases. We had one from Judge Albright a few weeks ago where the plaintiff wanted the defendant to bucketize some things more in their responses. And Judge Albright said no with respect to the specific requests in those cases. Here, Judge uh, Gilliland is saying yes. Now, there's not a lot of explanation here. Um, and you probably have to go find the transcript of the uh, hearing, uh, which they that no one may have ordered. So I don't know if there even is one or if you'd have to order it. but. A lot of times we're going to be in that gray area where, yes, we're asking you to, to create something, but it's not like what Judge Albright said no to. It's like what Judge Gilliland said yes to. And it seems that there's maybe a little bit of rule of reasonableness here. You know, if it's if it's easy for you to tell me what product matches what line in a spreadsheet versus go go do an infringement analysis of a bunch of your products. Right, right. You 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 have to do what's what's reasonable to do to to come up with it on your own if you can't do it then if you have to go to the court uh we look at proportionality look at who ought to be doing this look at who's in a better position to do it but yeah there's a rule of reasonableness here uh i would not encourage anyone to draw any bright lines here figure out what makes more sense because when you get in front of these two judges that's what they're going to be looking at is what's reasonable uh, if this is something I've, I've heard Judge Albright say before, he wasn't really focusing on the number of interrogatories or the number of requests or whatever he was focusing on is what you're asking something that in fairness, the other side ought to have to tell you or give you. So keep in mind, they're, they're going to be looking for what's a reasonable line to draw. Seems like something that senior level lawyers should be able to have a good feel for. If you can get a senior level lawyer on the phone calls where this stuff is happening, yes. That, that may be a, a large problem in several of these cases. Um, yeah. And in fact, there are some judges have rules. Judge Gilstrap has a specific rule that in certain meet and confers requires the senior lawyer and prohibits anybody else from the firm being on the call. Lead and local only. Uh, at some stage, and and that comes from the belief that 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 really is where um, uh, compromises can happen. Well, we'll see if if all right moves to that after right. he uh, decides a few silly disputes.
So um, we move on to a, a really more interesting one. This one didn't seem quite as silly, but that was uh, discovery on prior expert reports. And Judge Albright uh, denied the motion seeking discovery. And I was trying to figure out what's the principle behind this. Right. And, and because the order is short, it says for the reasons set forth on the record in the hearing. So again, if I had this request before I went went to the court with it, I'd go look up the, the hearing transcript on this and figure out what the court was interested in because what the, what the request was, was was for the plaintiff to produce its experts' reports and their deposition transcripts from a prior case where they were opining on the same patents. And, and, and the defendant said, we are fine with you redacting out the confidential information of the defendant in that case. We want the rest of it. And the court said no in that case for the reasons set forth in the hearing. So I think we ought to be very interested in what those reasons are if you're if you're looking for it. It may have been that the products were sufficiently different that the court didn't think that the prior statements by the experts mattered. And I will tell you, I had a uh, I was in a trial not too long ago with a judge, and I was trying to argue that well but this is what the expert said previously and and therefore it ought to and he said no 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 they're not a representative of the party for purposes of what you're wanting to get in so that there there may be a line that's being drawn here between whose prior statements you can get to prior statements of the party yes prior statements of the of the expert no um you see a lot of cases where people want all the experts prior testimony or reports. Well, if it's sufficiently different, you, you don't get it. So again, it, it wasn't the, the uh, finding that I would have expected, which tells me I need to dig in a little more if I have that issue come up and see what the court found important there. Well, my, my next one uh, goes under the category of this doesn't feel good if you're having to make this argument. Um, <laughs> First of all, you don't want to be sued by Baylor in Waco. That just seems like a recipe for disaster. Yeah, that 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 that's that was an interesting case here. Baylor University sued a company that it said was creating counterfeit sporting good products that said Baylor. And the company said, oh, lack of personal jurisdiction. We didn't purposefully direct our activities at Texas. Well, look, dude. Um, most of us that went to Baylor are actually in Texas. We're kind of your market. So maybe that's not the best argument in the world. But, you know, before I laugh at this too hard, um, personal jurisdiction law is so unsettled right now. I mean, we used to talk about general personal jurisdiction, and, and that's now with unicorns. So I don't know what arguments are going to work on appeal. So it looks really, it's its something you can make a lot of jokes about at the district court level, but it's an argument that that its time may come at some point uh, at the appellate level. But we still, I still had fun making fun of it. Again, the, the lawyer making that argument had to know, well, this is going to be going to be fun um, or uncomfortable. So yeah. Um, but you're right. It, it is something that really does turn on the facts and probably shouldn't be read so broadly as every university uh, can establish jurisdiction in its home courts. Um, oh, yeah. No, no, absolutely. I mean, you, you might have jurisdiction. You, I don't know if you're going to have. I mean, there are a lot of requirements there and they're more complicated than they used to be. But it was it was a fun case, in part because when I was in law school, I was a a clerk in the Baylor's Office of General Counsel. So this isn't the first time I've seen cases like this. 
So the, the LBT case is one where it seems that Judge Albright is reminding people again that he has a standard practice and he expects you to follow it. Yeah, in this case, this was a motion to dismiss directed to the, the plaintiff's claims for direct, joint, and induced infringement. And the judge said, okay, you're adequately pleaded for direct and joint infringement. Now, with respect to uh, induced infringement, he pointed out that I have a practice of dismissing pre-suit inducement claims with leave to amend uh, after fact discovery begins. So I'm striking those. In fact, he encourages people not even to force motions on that. Uh, just take them out, and then and then if you've got the facts later, add them back in. Um, so this is an example of that. The interesting thing here is the defendant didn't say anything in its motion about the claims for post-suit inducement. And Albright said, well, the direct infringement allegations are sufficient. Now, as far as post-suit in inducement, you didn't say anything in your motion. You didn't raise it until the reply stage. I'm not going to let you raise it at the reply stage. So the post-suit inducement claims remained in the live pleadings for that reason. Now, is there an estoppel issue there or is the court going to be willing to allow another motion? Uh, I, I don't I don't know if the if there's an estoppel issue. There probably is. He's probably not going to let someone raise it again. But again, I don't know how much it matters because if you have the facts, you'll get to you'll get to raise those same claims after discovery starts. I I tend to not fight too hard about stuff that either is not going to hurt me or that I know they're going to be able to raise later on anyway. So that that point may be moot. But I I would. I would certainly be trying to find someone else in the office to file the renewed motion uh, to sign off on the renewed motion to dismiss the uh, post-suit inducement claims. I will admit that. Well, we've got one, I think, really interesting venue determination, <clears throat> and that is, uh, what is it, the memory web case, and that's about uh, third party availability for, for trial, compulsory uh, process. So what are we supposed to take away from this? It seemed that the, the court was mildly irritated with everyone. We had a number of venue opinions in the last two weeks. The ones that I saw were all granted and, and something that was an effective factor for defendants in all of them, but especially in memory web, was the ability to compel third party witnesses. If you can show the court that there are third party witnesses who are important and that they're in a certain forum, but they're not in the Western District of Texas where he can compel them, that's a factor that weighs in favor. And in the memory web case, that seemed, that was the thing that the court found uh, to be, I can't say dispositive because they're not supposed to say one factor is dispositive, but it clearly was the thing that, that, that caused the granting of the motion because this was these were witnesses that the court believed were significant and it would be better if the case were heard where those witnesses' attendance at trial could be compelled. So as I was studying that opinion, there were a couple things that that struck me. Um, I, I love the, the words uh, uh, stating that a single LinkedIn page was dubious to support witness relevance. Now, you know, I know that's in a parenthetical, but when you when you put that in there, you're you're pointing out pretty clearly that the court seemed to think that both sides were abusing LinkedIn and he talks about geographically restri restricted LinkedIn searches 
uh, aura of venue gamemanship. Um, it was one of those old. Uh, oh, we wouldn't have all. gamesmanship in venue, would we? No, no. Lawyers are always straightforward. Uh, yeah. But apparently the obviousness of using a geographically restricted LinkedIn search to find people in one jurisdiction or another is not going to suffice. And it seems the court was firing a shot across everybody's bow. Don't bring this back to me without a better nexus in the future. Yeah. And I think there's some tension between, between that and what the federal circuit is requiring. So I think there is some room for um, what, what we might otherwise characterize as venue gamesmanship, because we used to say back in the old days, you couldn't play the battle of the numbers. You couldn't list every police officer that showed up at the scene as a relevant witness. Well, the federal circuit has been willing to give uh, parties the benefit of the doubt on witnesses. So I think you have to figure out where am I going to draw the line between padding my numbers and doing something that looks so manipulative that the court that a district court can get away with saying that is beyond the pale. I'm, I'm not going to credit that. Well, the the other case that came up was a, a co-seller case. And um, you, know, you, you had co-defendants, but Judge Albright didn't seem to be very impressed by the uh, retailer upstream entity type argument uh, made by, by Amazon. Yeah. So this, what, this... what does this tell us about e-commerce going forward? Well, th this was a situation where it wasn't the traditional, there's a chain that ends with a ret retailer. It wasn't a customer suit case exactly. It was a case where something was sold um, on Amazon by a another company. I can't remember the, the term that's used for that. The court called it a co-seller. So it's the same transaction. So the court said it doesn't make sense to sever these out. Um, I'm not going to stay it in favor of a deck action in Colorado because that wouldn't resolve all the things that, that the case I have is. But the bigger problem was with transfer because the defendant co-seller was a Texas company, a Texas res well, a Texas resident who could not be sued uh, in Colorado. So you have the problem that I think some defendants trip over, which is in order to get a case transferred, you have to be able to show that the case could have been brought in the in the transferee forum. And here they had the problem that that co-seller um, uh, could not have been uh, sued in Colorado. Well, in the, the Caddo case, um, it, this, this is really a, a how-to manual on striking an expert opinion, or at least judiciously picking the portions to strike. Uh, for those that are, are putting opinions together in the future, what should they, they take away from this, this excellent opinion? I think this is a good example. Uh, you have to realize when you're working with your expert on their opinions, um, they've got to stay, uh, different judges are more rigorous on this, but they got to stay within what's been disclosed in invalidity contentions. You've got to stay out of what are legal conclusions. You don't need that. That's not something expert needs to stay. And then in some cases, this expert was just saying things that the court said, that's just not right. That's just not uh, sufficiently supported. It, 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 was, it wasn't the most traditional Daubert motion in the world, but it was a very useful opinion to understand what, what I've got to make sure my expert stays within. Just because he says it in a, in a report doesn't mean the court's going to let her testify. Well, then there was another portion of this um, that I think gives us a, an idea how this court's going to respond. 
you know, I may have been taught by a senior partner early on, hey, ask your expert, anything else? And then let them give their real report, right? <laughs> then, and most judges or many judges will let it in, whatever's new, you know, it's part of the deposition, it's part of the, the written report, it's in the record, it's good enough. Uh, doesn't seem like that's going to fly in this court. Um, if it's introduced through a deposition, it's out. Yeah, yeah, I had that happen. My uh, first trial with Judge Gilstrap, where the parties agreed that experts could testify as long as it was disclosed in the, in the report or in a deposition. And he said, okay, well, we're just going to limit that to the report. And, and made clear, okay, and we both had things in our depositions that we wanted to use. Well, that was out. So, yes, yeah, some judges are very rigorous about that. I had a trial with Judge Gilstrap in February where he struck, I would say, safely half of the experts' infringement opinions because he'd only done a 15-page report, and what he was testifying to wasn't in that report. So the expert got halfway down checking those boxes, in his testimony and then had to stop talking fortunately for us the plaintiff didn't take those boards out of the courtroom so we spent the next three days holding those boards up showing how the boxes weren't checked so you have to be aware what leeway your judge is going to get you give you to go outside a report and make sure you build the build the testimony in a way that you're comfortable you can get it in well as we we move to the the eastern district of texas we had a, a retrial in the Tyler division that probably, uh, as opposed to being comfortable, was probably quite uncomfortable. Uh, another one of those winning cases that uh, isn't really winning. I think what six hundred and fifty-nine thousand in damages on a retrial. Yeah, and and my hats off to the defendant here because I've had a damages only retrial recently, and it was as a defendant, and it's not fun. Uh, here, the uh, defendant got a good uh, outcome. The original verdict a year ago was 825000 Judge Schrader set it aside, um, finding that it, that it wasn't sufficiently supported, allowed a retrial on damages, and the jury came back with 659000 Now, we know that the plaintiff asked the jury for over $4 million, but, I mean, when the, when the pot at the end of a patent lawsuit is $659,000, I know who that's a win for, and it's not the plaintiff. Well, and, and I love the, what is the insult to injury that when the jury declined to find that the uh, infringement since the trial was, was willful. Right. Right. So. It wasn't willful. And my recollection is it was a lump sum. So there's, it's not like they can say, well, yeah, but we can get future damages. I, my recollection is, nope, it's a lump sum. Yeah, we, I'm, I'm with you. I know who was celebrating that night. <laughs> I, so there's, we're still focusing there on the, the Eastern District of Texas, and a, a fight that's popping up more and more around the country is this fight about prior license negotiations and more about litigation funding documents. So what trends are we seeing, uh, at least in the Eastern District of Texas and maybe more broadly through Texas? Well, we got a very good a very good indication on this from Judge Gilstrap. The defendant asked for information about prior licenses um, uh, and then... Um, negotiation surrounding licenses, and then they wanted any litigation funding documents. On the prior licenses, everybody agreed that they get that. The plaintiff just said, hey, I've got to have an order to produce a couple of these. Okay, no problem. Defendant says, okay, I also want all the negotiation documents for those licenses. And Gilstrap said, um, no, you haven't shown why you need, 
more than just the document. And this goes back several years early on before the Federal Circuit even said this. Judge Gilstrap had an opinion saying presumptively you don't get negotiation documents, you just get the final document. You have to make a showing that the negotiations actually shed light on the value. So what he said here is, I realize you don't have the documents yet. Get the documents, and then he gave him 10 days to then re-urge the motion and say, okay, the document is not enough. We need the, the uh, negotiations. Then the big part of this is they also said, oh, and we want any litig litigation funding documents. And the reason was, well, this tells us if there's a standing issue. And Judge Gilstrap said, no, you haven't shown that it's relevant to an issue in the case. You're just... Um, speculating it's a fishing expedition to say well maybe there's an agreement out there that raises a standing issue so he says the the burden to establish standing um there hasn't been a good faith challenge to the to the plaintiff standing and in the absence of that you don't get the funding agreements well of course we know that new judges in delaware uh are requiring that and perhaps not coincidentally, the filing trends since that order came out of Delaware, filings have been going up in the Western District of Texas, Waco. They had been going down a little bit. They started going up after that new order came out. Now, because of the venue restrictions, filings can't change a lot in an upward direction in the Eastern District. They can in the Western District. So what, the, what I think this tells us is you're not going to have the same kind of order out of judges in the Eastern District, or at least out of Judge Gilstrap. And uh, plaintiffs apparently believe they won't get orders like that uh, from Judge Albright because they're choosing to file there. But again, that's something that we need to continue to be looking at. I've attended a seminar recently on discoverability of these litigation funding agreements, and I don't think that this issue is, is done by any means. This is going to continue to be fought, and at some point the, the Federal Circuit will probably tell us uh, what kind of discovery you can get. Well, and, I, and you you said it, but it's worth repeating. This was Judge Gilstrap. We haven't seen a ruling from Judge Albright, Judge Yackel. Um, there's a lot more to be done before people can broadly say, this is how Texas does it. This is how Delaware does it. Right. Making it making a conclusory statement that we need to see this to determine whether there's a standing issue is not enough in front of Judge Gilstrap. That's what this tells us. And then we'll wait and see what the next argument uh, is. So there was a, another uh, case, well, ACUS keeps giving in this, this, uh, these two weeks, uh, this one is another alternative service. And we've seen more alternative service cases out of the Eastern and Western District, Texas, uh, Western Districts than I've seen in 10 years. Uh, but here's one more. Well, I think, and, and this one, the reason why ACUS is notable is because it's Judge Payne telling us the same things that we've been getting all these orders from Judge uh, uh, Albright and Judge Gilliland. You have to try another method first. You just can't come in and say, you know, service under the Hague is just a lot of work and it delays things. So let's do something else. You, you have to do something more than that. I think because we saw some decisions that seemed to indicate that was a possibility, we got a lot of people trying that and you see a lot of judges now pushing back and saying, no, 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 you need to show a little more than that. Uh, I, again, I think we'll, uh, I'm, I don't think the case law has quite settled down yet enough on how much is enough. We know nothing is not enough. Well, then we, we get another 
interesting case, this from the Eastern District on uh, uh, improper venue, and this one was, was granted. Yeah, this is the Parallel Networks case. It's an interesting case because the defendant listed an office in the Eastern District on its website, but it turned out that was a mistake. That was an office that had belonged that that the defendant had had several years ago, but it sold off the subsidiary that was operating it. So by the time suit was filed, it actually didn't have an office. So the plaintiff tried to argue, okay, it's on your website, therefore that's enough. And the court said no. And then they said, well, you had a regular established place of business, and temporally that was close enough. And Judge Gilstrap said no. Um, it needs to be as of when you when you file the case. Uh, N. Ray Cray talks about it in the present tense. Do you have a regular established? Uh, do you have a physical location? Do you have a regular established place of business? Not had, have. There may be an argument. I've seen this come up early on in the Cray cases. There may be an argument that if the defendant had just shut it down. When case was when the case was filed, maybe you can make the argument then. But here, um, this was this this did not get you there. And the court also declined venue discovery because venue discovery is generally to tell is it the place of the defendant. And he said, well, since there wasn't a place in the first place, yeah, I guess that's that's the right way of saying it. Yes. Since there wasn't a physical place in the first place, it. It doesn't matter how much you show me it was of the defendant. You haven't met that problem. So an interesting case on improper venue. Well, and I've seen that come up in, in other discussions. Well, you had a place of business when the infringement was ongoing, but it seems like we clearly uh, have a big no on that, that approach going forward. I think so. So this one seemed like an interesting dispute. Um, this is the, the Staten case, and this was depositions in South Korea. Now, lawyers are known to, to fight over where depositions need to take place. Uh, you got that famous order where it was, uh, it was ordered on the state line between Texas and Arkansas um, because the parties couldn't agree. And in this one, it was the simple question of, should we have to go to South Korea to do, do depositions? And it seems that the judge Payne wasn't impressed. Well, and, and you need to know the background of this case. The plaintiffs in this case, there are two. Um, the plaintiff is a South Korean company with offices in the United States, and it sues these two individuals in South Korea. It wants to take their depositions in South Korea, and the plaintiffs have Texas Council, or I, I shouldn't say Texas, have American Council, and the Council said, look, why don't we do this by Zoom so we don't have to go to South Korea to defend these depositions of our clients who are located in South Korea? And under those facts, and, and, and giving some indication that the um, uh, significance of the allegations against the defendants weighed into his decision, Judge Payne says, no, under these facts, they get to have an in-person deposition. Um, so if, if you want your American lawyers there, they're going to have to, to travel there, but we're not, but he, he would not require, he would not limit the plaintiffs to a Zoom deposition of the defendants. Well, it seemed like an interesting fight. They burned up half their costs just in the briefing. You could have just done yeah. that deposition. Yeah. Um, and the, the shortness of, of Judge Payne's order 
is why I took it as he wasn't impressed by the arguments very much. Um, well, and, and it could be a situation where, where uh, counsel are still trying to kind of work out how receptive is a court to, Zoom, to requiring a party to proceed by Zoom. Uh, we've got a recent order by the Texas Supreme Court that allows trial courts to tell you, yeah, you get a jury trial, but it can be by Zoom if I think it can be by Zoom. So they may have just been trying to see where is the court going to come down on this. Well, the, the next case doesn't break any legal ground, but it is a wonderful outline. Uh, Judge Mazant's uh, case in WAPP. Oh, yeah. An, another very useful um, uh, place to steal your boilerplate from. Go through Judge Mazant's order here. He lays out the discovery for, he lays out the standards for discovery. He lays out the standards for patent damages in Georgia Pacific and when things are relevant. And then he says, in light of that, I think the documents that are being requested are relevant and should be disclosed. But it's not the holding that is interesting to me. It's the court's explication of the standards. And then if you're practicing in front of Judge Mazant, what is he, how wide, how, how broad does he go on this stuff? So you get to hear him say, here are the standards. I understand what you're asking for. And here's why I think you ought to have to uh, produce it. I can study that opinion and in the future maybe have a better idea, well, this is a fight I shouldn't fight, or if I'm going to fight this fight, I need to make a different argument. Well, another interesting case from Judge Gilstrap is the Segan case. Um, looking at, and it's a, something most of us have faced at some point or the other, uh, you have to put a new expert in right at trial. And this gives you a little view of how Judge Gilstrap sees this, albeit it may be for a, a small issue that was just for the bench trial and he wasn't too enamored with. Yeah, and, and actually what the what the defendant was proposing here, we're going to sub in, this, this expert can't do it for health reasons. We will sub in another expert, he will adopt everything, he will completely lay on top of the prior opinions. We've seen Judge Gilstrap accept this before, uh, when it was agreed in certain cases, and even when it wasn't agreed, where the basic concept was agreed, he went along with it. Well, this was a little different. This isn't in front of a, a, a jury. This is in a post, in a bench trial on prosecution latches that's happening afterwards. And the defendant says, well, we want to have a live expert there. And Judge Gilstrap says, well, you're wanting him there because of his credibility. I'm not able to judge his credibility because these aren't his opinions. So you can put that person on, you can, you can put the report in, uh, you can use what you've already got, and I'll consider that on the papers. And the defendant was saying, no, 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 we have a due process right to have a live expert. And he said, no, you don't. You had a chance to have a live expert that didn't work out so well. So now we're going to do it on the paper. And the plaintiff can bring somebody live. They cannot bring somebody live. They can do it on the papers, not do it on the papers, whatever they want to do. You have lost your ability to call someone live. And I'll just consider it on the papers. Now, as a practical matter, I don't think you lost anything here because this is such a, a legal issue that I don't think it was worth the fight over getting the expert here live. But it is worth noting that this was a procedure that courts sometimes go along with uh, so that a trial can go forward. In this case, the judge found that that wasn't necessary in a uh, bench trial proceeding. 
so Michael, I'd, I'd like to, to end this, this two week uh, discussion on a Judge Schrader opinion about um, motion for leave to supplement contentions where he complains, complained mightily about a poor showing of diligence but then allowed the allowed the amendments anyway. Oh yeah, yeah. This this uh, yeah. I thought this order was going to go the other way until very end because he he was not happy with diligence, but because of the other factors he ended up saying because of the importance, because of the slight delay and the lack of unfair prejudice, I'm going to go ahead and let you do it. So it is a it is an example of how much trouble lack of diligence can get you into, but that it still may not be the end of the story. Well, this one could have gone a different way very easily and in front of a different judge could have gone a different way. I so, think so. I think so. Um, pretty, pretty lucky anytime you have the words uh, poor showing of diligence and you're <laughs> straight from the bench. You most of the well, time you're gonna look in the timing, this wasn't the worst diligence I've seen on this. So it's very informative that he considered this level of delay sufficient to use that kind of language regarding timing. I had someone the Six other weeks. day. I had someone the other day uh, tell me, "Oh, we've got some stuff in, but we've still got the stuff rolling in, so we'll wait and move to supplement after we have everything in." And I said, "No, no, 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 no. Send it to the other side now. Send them amended. I mean, don't do that because you could very well have a situation where the court says, "Hey, wait, you knew about this for two months and sat on it." Well, yeah, I guess we kind of did. We thought we would just wait till we had everything in, and this case warns you that that may not be the best way to go. It's very, in fact, it's a very dangerous way to go. Well, and, and this delay was six weeks, so I don't know where it would have gone from poor showing of diligence to a decent showing of diligence. I don't know if that's four weeks, three weeks, right? Uh, but that, six weeks is, delay. This is shorter timing than the two of us on this podcast would have thought would uh, would have gotten that finding. I, I was surprised. Six weeks and poor showing is not normal, yeah. but it may be going forward. So I, I like your advice. Um, do it early. Do it often. Uh, don't wait to consolidate. Yep. So with that, Michael, well, thank you once again for, for walking us through these. Uh, lots of good nuggets to take away, um, hopefully guiding people away from unnecessary motions and toward the necessary ones. All right. Well, I enjoyed it. Y'all enjoy the rest of my birthday. Happy birthday. <laughs>